Good morning. I want to thank you for being here this morning. If you are a visitor, we want to welcome you. You are our honored guests. We pray that what you hear here today will be uplifting and will and will be right in the sight of God. And to, to that extent, I'd like to thank Carl for his prayer on my behalf. I hope that what you hear is uplifting and also edifying. Today we're going to be talking about the view from Ebenezer. Now, if you've driven through the mountains, say the Appalachians, for instance, you may recall seeing occasionally a sign at the side of the road that says Scenic Overlook. It's an opportunity for you to pull off the road, to pause in your journey, and maybe look around the lands that, uh, that you've been driving through. Sometimes it lets you look back at where you've been. Other times it gives you a vista before you as to where you're heading. I like the ones that allow you to look both directions to get a sense of where you are in your journey. If you're like me, you have a tendency, though, to speed by those signs, to miss the turnoff that gives you this opportunity because you're so focused on the road ahead and where you're going that you don't pause, that you don't take that opportunity. If you choose to stop, you may be treated to a spectacular view. Now, the path in life that we take can be like those roads through the mountains. We're actually offered landmarks, landmark moments in which we can pause and consider the landscape of our lives. Such moments give us the opportunity to look back at where we have been, to examine where we are and how we got there, and to contemplate where we are headed. These are important moments. But just like the scenic overlook, we have a tendency sometimes to just cruise right past them because we're so focused on the road ahead, on the moment. If you focus, if you focus on where you are going right now, you may miss where you have been and have no sense of where you are going, and that is a path to being lost. The Bible teaches us that such pauses during a landscape moment are important. Based on the scripture that was just read for us, you might call it an Ebenezer moment. We'll go back to that story in a few minutes, but let's begin with one that's a bit earlier in the Bible. If you would turn with me to Joshua chapter 3. We're going to be talking about the children of Israel as they prepare to cross the Jordan River and enter the Promised Land. I'm going to be reading from Joshua chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Joshua 3, 14 through 17. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. While the water flowing down to the Sea of Araba, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. This is a landmark moment for the children of Israel. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. In those years, they have been nurtured by God's blessings and periodically punished by him for their willful disobedience. At this moment, by God's grace, they have come to the threshold of Canaan, the promised land. Today, their purpose will change from reaching out to achieve that promised land and actually obtaining and occupying it. Joshua had prepared them for this moment. 
The day before he broke camp on the, eastern, uh, on the eastern shore of the Jordan, he had warned them to consecrate themselves, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Shortly before they had begun their march that morning, he told them exactly what was going to happen to the Jordan River and how they were going to cross. He also explained why it mattered, why it was important. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. There are a lot of challenges that they're going to be facing as they enter this promised land. He wants to remind them that the God whose power will hold back the Jordan is going to go with them and hold their hand as they enter into the promise that he has made for their forefathers. God clearly viewed this as a moment worthy of a landmark. When all of the people had crossed to the western shore, with only the priests and the ark still out in the riverbed, he told Joshua, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you and put them down to the place where you will stay tonight. Now why did God want those stones? There were plenty of stones on the shoreline. Why did he want those? Well, he certainly wanted to give those present a chance to reflect and consider the moment and what it meant for them as a nation and as a people. Joshua told the men who would be gathering the stones that those stones would serve as a sign for them and a memorial for their descendants. But God's purpose was greater than just that. And Joshua made clear what that broader vision was all about. A few verses later, when he, when he raises those stones at Gilgal, a, near, a nearby town outside Jericho, in Joshua chapter 4, 21 through 24, you can read what he tells the children of Israel. If you want, turn with me there. It's a, it's a good verse. In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? You tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. The monument at Gilgal was meant to help the Israelites recall how God had brought them to their promised land, holding back the waters of the Jordan just as he had those at the Red Sea at the beginning of that journey. However, it was much more than just an invitation to look back. That monument would serve as a call to all peoples of every nation to know that the Lord our God is a powerful God. And if you read on in the verses, you find out that very quickly the word spread and that all throughout the Philistine lands, throughout all of Canaan, the leaders quaked because they heard what God had done for his people. It would also serve as a reminder to the Israelites that they must always fear the Lord who had brought them that far. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I've come. You brought me here. Imagine where we'll go from here. Years became decades and decades centuries, and things changed. About 300 years after the crossing of the Jordan, the Jews had settled the promised land, but appeared to have forgotten the message of the stones at Gilgal. No longer did they properly fear the Lord that had brought them so far. Oh, they still had the Ark of the Covenant at Shiloh, but many had begun to worship idols and participate in the rituals of local gods like Baal and Ashtaroth. The last, book of, the last verse of the book of Judges tells the story. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
Even the priests had become corrupt. Turn with me to, to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 2, verse 12. I'm taking you to 1 Samuel because this is where the, where the main story is at this point. If you read 1 Samuel chapter 2, and you get to verse 12, you find out that, that the priests are not really doing a very good job. And in point of fact, in some ways are ignoring the responsibility that was placed on them from the, from the first. In those verses, we read of Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of the high priest Eli, who were supposed to be priests themselves. But these verses describe them as worthless men who did not know the Lord. How much condemnation is that? You are supposed to be the priest for this, for this nation, the, the one who speaks to this nation as to how they should live in the sight of God, and you do not know the Lord. They took by force the best portions of the sacrifices to be offered to the Lord and lay with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Their father rebuked them, but they would not listen to his voice, for the Lord desired to put them to death. That's chapter 2, verse 25. Now, to fully appreciate how far Israel has strayed from God, you have to look at, at 1 Samuel chapter 4, which is where we move toward the scripture that we had read today. Now, I'm going to read to you from the New American Standard Version for this particular text because I found an interesting distinction in the, in the versions that we have, and I'll explain that in a minute. For the moment, listen as I read 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in Aphek. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take the ark to ourselves from Shiloh, the, the ark of, let us take for ourselves the ark of the covenant of the Lord that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. They asked the right question up front, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today? But that's as close as they got to being right. Do they attempt to approach God to get the answer to that question? No, they reach for the Ark of the Covenant. Now here's where the translation matters. Some versions like the, uh, the New International Version, which I believe in most cases is a very solid translation, read, let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us. Those verse, that, that translation implies that it is God who is going to come with the ark and save them. The King James and the New American Standard Version translate, uh, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh that it may save us. Now, if the King James and the New, New American Standard ver translations are correct, then the men of Israel are treating this ark as a talisman. They're treating it like one of the idols that they have been worshiping. They believe that because they have this ark, that they automatically have the power of God with them. Whatever the translation is, it's clear that the men of Israel have lost their appreciation for who God really is and forgotten that they need to fear him, as the stones at Gilgal said they should. What's the result? Well, let's pick up the story at verse 10. And the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten, and they fled every man to his tent, and there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen, and the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. 
The Philistines held the ark for seven months before God's plagues drove them to return it to the Israelites. First, it was kept by the people of Beth Shemesh, but the Lord killed 50,000 of them because some had dared to look into the ark. Their response when this happened? Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Their words suggest that they were finally beginning to show the proper fear for the Lord that had brought them across Jordan, that they were finally beginning to remember the message of the stones at Gilgal. Now, the beginning of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7, which was just read for us, suggests that over the next 20 years, while that ark remained with them, that the nation of Israel as a whole began to rediscover what they had forgotten about their God. If you would, let's take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 2 through 5. The ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourself of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now the Philistines heard of the Israelites gathering at Mizpah, and they assumed that, that it was for battle, so they mobilized their army and prepared to fight. The Israelites saw this and were afraid, but their actions were very different from the ones that they had taken two decades earlier. They didn't reach for the ark, they reached out to their God. They appealed to Samuel, do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. God heard their cry that day and gave them a mighty victory. On that day, on that day following the victory, Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, which means stone of hope, and said, thus far the Lord has helped us. Another way of, of interpreting that is, God has brought us this far. This, like the day they crossed the Jordan River, is a landmark moment for the children of Israel. It's a moment of reconciliation. Looking back at who they had been, they acknowledged their sin and did away with the idols that separated them from their God. Confronted with the threat they were unprepared to handle, they appealed to the Lord for his merciful intervention and their salvation. Having placed their faith in God, they were victorious. Samuel's Ebenezer did not represent the victory of the day alone. It proclaimed the reclamation of the relationship between God and his people for all who would see it. Now we as Christians know the view from Ebenezer. Looking to our past, we acknowledged and repented of the sins that were separating us from our God. Considering our need for a power beyond our own, we confess the name of Christ as God's Son and the source of our salvation. With hands upheld in appeal to our God for mercy, we were baptized into Christ. Having placed our faith in God, we are confident in the victory that will be ours on the day of judgment. When we gather at this table for the Lord's Supper, like, that, like the 12 stones at Gilgal, they call us to remember on God's power and to fear him. Such landmarks are just a waypoint on the journey, or excuse me, as we consider the source of our salvation 
and the hope that we have in Christ and prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the fruit of the vine that represent the body and the blood of the one sacrificed for us in the hope that we might have eternity with God, that provide reconciliation between a lost people and their, and their God, we are saying, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither my God, by thy help I have come. Now it's important to remember that the landmark of the cross, like the 12 stones at Gilgal, call us to, do, call us to always remember God's power and fear him. Such landmarks are just a waypoint on the journey, though, and not the destination. Recognizing the gift that we have been given, we must live as the people God wants us to be as we seek out our own promised land at the feet of his throne. Paul speaks to this in his letter to the Philippian church. Turn with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Philippians 3, 10 through 14. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on. He understands where he has been. He understands where he is that day, but he knows that he has more of a journey to take, and he is striving for that goal. I want to go back and I want to read the song that we just sang, a portion of it anyway. I'm going to read verse 2. And I want you to think about what I've just told you as you listen to this verse. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I have come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. If you've not responded to God's merciful offer of salvation, I want you to take a moment to pause at this scenic overlook, to view the landscape of your life and consider where you are in relationship to your God. The path to salvation begins with Christ. Make this a landmark moment by repenting of your sins, confessing his name, and putting him on in baptism. Now maybe you've done those things and, and you are a Christian, but you're struggling as you press toward the goal that Paul talked about. You're not alone, and we offer you this opportunity to let us prove it, whether through prayers or through assistance. Whatever your name may be, won't you come as we stand and sing?